it's just created this wave of innovation. So I just encourage you to look through your business, look at parts of your business that you thought technology could never touch. Maybe now there is a way that you could make that part of your business better. Embrace AI, go as fast as you can, but make sure you have a moat because this is going to be a period of time where everything is condensed. I need to be able to iterate, I need to be able to move, I need to be able to change as the market changes, but also keep with the core that what is my differentiator at the end of the day. It's about how we continue innovating and taking AI across the software development lifecycle. And it's a lot of focus about education across the board, not just students per se, but all the learners that we have in the community to make sure that everyone is ready for the revolution that is happening right now. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. This week on the show, we're featuring my discussion from the recent GeekWire Summit in Seattle with three technology and business leaders who have firsthand insights into the new era of artificial intelligence. Joining me are Bridget Fry, CTO at Redfin, the tech-powered real estate company that operates in more than 100 markets in the US and Canada. Inbal Shani, Chief Product Officer at GitHub, the software development platform used by more than 100 million developers around the world. And David Shim, CEO at Read AI, a Seattle-based startup using AI to provide a new window into meetings they address topics like privacy, bias, education, and the future of work. Plus the changing nature of technical jobs and the blurring of the line between developers and non-developers. From the audience, we get questions about adapting AI to account for emotional intelligence, advice for aspiring software engineers, preventing synthetic content from corrupting human experiences, protecting proprietary corporate data, and the prospects for improving work-life balance as AI increases productivity. All that coming up this week on the GeekWire podcast. Let's jump into the discussion. So much has changed in the past year, and the three of you have really seen the, the potential and the pitfalls up close. I'd like to start by asking each of you just to share a little bit about the work that you and your teams do and how it has been reshaped and driven by AI so Bridget, as the Chief Technology Officer at Redfin, maybe you could start for us. What has the past year been like for you and your team? Yeah, it is just, it's been off the charts, really, the amount of innovation and the pace of innovation around AI has picked up so much. Within days of ChatGPT being launched, our content marketers had integrated it into everything that they were doing. Real estate is so local, you really need to take a lot of content and localize it, get it down to the local level. So our content team has been able to make four times as much localized content. Within weeks, we had a hackathon that was full of ideas around AI. And now it's a couple months later and we have several features either already launched or in development. It is affecting every part of our business. Inbal, so you joined GitHub a year ago at really an inflection point for this company with the adoption of GitHub Copilot, soaring to more than 1 million developers and 20,000 organizations as of June of this year. For us non-developers out there, I tend to think of GitHub Copilot as basically a virtual AI teammate, right? where it operates alongside the software developers, automatically generating code and helping them do their work. You've worked on AI since your college days as an engineer and throughout your career. How have your eyes been open to the potential of AI and what has your team been going through over the past year at GitHub? Yeah, so I started my career as an applied scientist and, and I tune models for a living even before it was even known as AI. And when I did my master's degree, it was in control systems. And I used something that at that time was super innovative. It was called genetic algorithms to tune the controllers. And then I've seen the evolution through NLPs and now the democratization of AI. I would say that GitHub is full steam ahead with AI. 
we are focusing on productivity, we're focusing on collaboration, we're taking advantage of the world of LLM and we're trying to figure out how to make it much more applicable for all software developers, but not just software developers. We can think about software development lifecycle as something that GitHub is fully invested in. And we'll dive into that a little bit more later on in terms of the implications more broadly of some of these AI pair programmers and what they mean for all of us in terms of foreshadowing how it's going to transform our work. David, you started Read AI after a long career as an entrepreneur and an investor. Tell us about Read AI, what you do for meetings, yeah. and how your focus has changed over the past year. 100%. So when we first started, uh, if you've ever been on a call and you've noticed like someone starts to look over there, uh, you can see they pulled out their phone, they're kind of looking over here, you take your notes, you turn off your camera. Uh, we detected that in real time. And we thought there was a use case to say, we are the car dashboard for your meeting to say, how is that meeting going in real time? What we realized was that was information overload. People were like, this is too much information all at the same time. What can you do with that information down the road? And right around that time where we were looking for that inflection point, uh, ChatGPT came out. We went in and said, what can we do that's really different? And you can do summaries, you can do prompt engineering. Everyone does that. There's like 60 different meeting summary companies out there. But what we did was we actually took the technology that we had to say, was someone paying attention? Were they smiling? Were they distracted? And we created the narration layer. So being able to take the quotes from the meeting, but then adding in a layer of narration to go in and say, David said this, but Todd was disinterested and he looked away. Those things create for a better summary. I'm right here with you, David, <laughs> right here. So I've been using Read AI over the past few days. David uh, was nice enough to give me access to an enterprise license to just check it out. And one of the things that's been fascinating in the people that I've been in meetings with is it tells them it's recording, but they don't necessarily know that AI is analyzing whether they're paying attention to me. <laughs> so one question I had for you, David, was how do you approach the whole issue of privacy and disclosure and have you reached maturity in terms of your own approach to that with Read AI, or do you think it'll evolve going forward? Uh, it, it will always evolve, but I think right now, uh, I come from an ad background, and with from an ad background, you want to get all the disclosures out right away. And there is no benefit to go in and say, hey, I'm going to be tricky, and I'm not going to tell people I'm recording, I'm not going to tell people I'm on the call, because what you're going to run into is as you get scale, you'll get blocked, you'll get in trouble. So what we do is like when you join a call, we tell you that we're recording, we send you a chat notification to say, we're measuring this call. If you want a copy of this report, click here. Uh, and then we let people opt out. I think that's the big difference here. You could type in opt out in the chat and then we'll leave the meeting and we'll delete all the data. So there the user has full control. And I think that kind of level of information might be a little overkill when you start, but then people start to get comfortable. It's like, okay, if, if we get to a point where I accidentally say something, I could type an opt out and it's gone and it's in the ether. Bridget, you mentioned some of your content marketing teams using AI. I'm curious how your developers in particular and engineers are using AI, what it's meant for the efficiency of your teams, your hiring. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what this means for your engineering team right now. Yeah, so we're a GitHub shop. We love the product. And so when Copilot came out, we were very eager to start using that. And it has been really successful internally, especially with our senior engineers. I think, I think of it as that our senior engineers are used to explaining to more junior engineers, here's how the code needs to be developed, here's what needs to be done. So they're able to take that skill set and essentially adapt it to Copilot and say, hey, Copilot, here's how we need to evolve the code, here's what we need to do. And so we're currently accepting about 25% of the suggestions that Copilot gives us. And I know that Inbal's team is, is very hard at work trying to make that even better, but 25% is a really 
large amount. Like it's it's really making our engineers more efficient. Imbal, is that reflective of what you're seeing in terms of usage and reliability of the types of suggestions that the copilot is making? Yeah, we, we see it on average across all our customers and um, the different licenses that we have that copilot acceptance rate is something like 55% which is a very high acceptance rate. It really depends on the use case that you use. But I do agree with Bridget. We see a lot of success with the more senior developers because if you think about the world of senior developers, you want them to focus a lot on system designs and kind of architecting the code, putting best practices. And the actual coding, it takes a lot of their time. We've seen that for a senior developer, it takes something like 25% of their time that they actually spend time on coding and architecting. Rest of the time, you know what they do? They wait for a build, they attend meetings, they spend time in thinking about the build and when they are going to attend meetings. So how are we taking that 25% of their time or less than 25% of their time and optimizing it? And we see a lot of success with the more senior developers, but we also take responsibility on, on the next generation of developers and our education programs that have more than 5 million learners is focusing a lot on preparing the next generation developers into the world that AI is table stakes. Because everyone is using AI, we see that as a pair programmer, we see that across software development lifecycle, but we take a lot of responsibility on making sure that everyone is ready for that world of AI. One of the questions that came through from a GeekWire Summit audience member in our pre-event survey addressed this point, and it was not only how to integrate AI into your work, but how to transition from a, quote, regular software engineering job to more of an AI-related software engineering job. Right. Is that a distinction today? Will it be a distinction in the future? And how is AI transforming just the nature of software development? Yeah, so I, I think there are two elements for that. The, the first thing is that uh, we'll see more emphasis on system design and system architecture and coding best practices. The second element is how to write more secure code because you have an AI pair programmer, you need to pay more attention to make sure that you don't have vulnerabilities. So to making sure that all your security processes or the security tools that you're using are checking that what the developers are accepting is, is really where it needs to be. And I think the second part is really helping the universities and the communities helping these developers to be ready for that future where you have an AI pair programmer. But the way we think on AI in, in GitHub, it's much more than the code complete that you see today or the chat capabilities. We think about improving productivity and collaborations for the developers. This means taking AI across the software development lifecycle. So it's not just what you see today. There's a lot of things coming, and I think some of that we already announced, and some of that is coming into our uh, universe now in November, that you'll see how AI is going completely through the software development lifecycle, especially through security. How are we shifting left and using AI to write better and empowering our developers to write more secure software? We really see that the best software developers are lazy. And so right. if AI <laughs> makes you a better software developer, it's going to be part of every software developer's life cycle, yeah. for sure. What can we take from that and apply writ large to work? Are there lessons that you've seen either inside GitHub in terms of your own usage of Copilot or your customers' uses of Copilot or at Redfin that would apply to the broader aspect of work in potentially the pitfalls, too, of being lazy and relying on AI. I think the quickest cases we've been able to get going are ones that involve feeding a lot of data to a human, and the human has to read and absorb all of this information and synthesize it. So one example for us is we have the Redfin estimate, which helps to 
say what you what we think your home would sell for and we'll get customers who write in and say you know why did the algorithm say that my house is worth this and that has typically taken a customer support person 30 minutes to go through like we know but it's a complicated algorithm and you know it's a lot to go through so we wrote an ai model to do this we fed in all of the data and the ai in one minute can summarize that for a customer so it's really transformed cases like that i think david your company is like that too feeding in a lot of information and synthesizing Hundred percent, and I think the the value proposition there is one: you go to a meeting, you don't need to take notes; it takes care of it, and it does better than my notes. I go back to them; I can't read them. I don't know what I said here. I don't have instant recall versus I can click the note and I can see the video. But I think where the bigger picture is that whole workflow, and I think this is where AI comes in: is if I have a meeting about a specific topic and I'm engaged in that topic, imagine I can send the AI to other meetings and actually go in and say, "This is interesting to me. Give me a recap of this." So I don't need to have multiple meetings across my team to say, what have you been working on? But I can actually get a state of the land, a state of the system right off the bat. That is such an interesting use case to send your AI assistant to a meeting and it gets into some of the issues of social acceptance. What kinds of reactions have you seen from users and particularly from their colleagues when their AI bot shows up on their behalf? <laughs> Uh, so it's always it's always like, what is this? Who invited this? And I think the most embarrassing thing is when your AI beats you to the meeting where you're five minutes late. <laughs> so that kind of makes you look bad. So we've been people have asked us like, hey, can you make it come in a minute or two after I join? But I think the 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 big thing that we see is the value proposition is high enough that people say, okay, this makes sense. They get the notes after the meeting and they're like, oh, this is better than what I could have done. So you saved me time. You've let me focus in on the conversation versus going in and spending a bunch of time taking notes. And that's where, you know, from our user base, I'd say 50% of them, I consider them not tech savvy. So they're coming in and they're just trying it out. They're like, what is this? They sign up for it. Uh, we join a meeting and they're like, oh, this is actually high value. So we've gotten like NGOs uh, in South Africa that are using it right now. We've got users at different charitable organizations. We've got schools, government organizations where they were never our target audience. Like we don't go to those trades, but ultimately they see it and they actually take action against it. Well, that's very true that you, when you develop something and you put it at the hands of the customers, right, you have a specific use case in, in mind mm -hmm. and then you find that your customers are using it completely different than what you plan to do from the get-go. Have you found that with Copilot as well? We've seen that in Copilot. We build Copilot for developers, but now we see non-developers using Copilot and we see people that are program managers or product managers or just different people that want to experiment with what does it mean to develop an application or developing code and they start playing with Copilot and they can get an application up and running. We had recently a program manager, I think, in customer support with one of our partners, and she developed again an application on the phone, and she put it on the marketplace, and now it's doing well. And she she doesn't know how to write code. She never wrote in code <laughs> a day of her life. So so you see these use cases um, a lot. Next up, more on the fundamental changes coming in the nature of software development. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included.
this gets into the education and hiring and training issue. What happens to the distinction between a developer and a non-developer in this future? Are you going to see more uh, applications, low-code, no-code development combined with Copilot, perhaps taking work away from trained software developers? I think it really could change the work or the focus of the engineer for sure. I mean, low-code and no-code are also transforming a lot of things. We have instances where you know we have a complicated workflow in real estate and typically it would have taken an engineer if we wanted to change that workflow but with low code solutions we can have a product manager making those changes and so it can redistribute the work down that track of who knows the most about technical coding all the way to people who know more about the business and shift where that work happens to the people who are best suited to it i think it's similar to tools like figma that have really transformed design, where design used to be something you had to use very specialized software in order to design the user interface for a particular product. With Figma, anyone can do that. I think that these sorts of tools are expanding that. Yeah, I, I see that just as another language. Because wh when I started my career, C was the big thing. And everyone was writing C, and then we were afraid of these Java people that are coming and taking our job because we don't need to write libraries anymore. There are all these libraries. And then Python came, which was another big fear. It's like, oh my God, what is this language and how are we going to survive with the fact that we don't need to do anything? So now we have an AI. So really the natural language processing is coming to the world and it's becoming just another way to communicate with a machine and write code. So I, I don't predict that taking work from people. I just expect that the same, that languages throughout the generation have changed the way we develop software. AI is going to do exactly the same. For Bridget and David, I'm curious if it's changing at all your own hiring practices. Like, Are there situations where a job that might have taken two engineers could today be one engineer plus co-pilot? Or and or another assistive programming. We we are seeing that kind of it's it's the shift is maybe small so far, but I think especially in cases like content that we're putting onto the site. So one example, we had built an integration with a partner who provided local information about what it's like to live in a certain area. We have all the data for that, but we needed somebody to put a human spin on that and make it interesting and write for a particular area. So we've been able to have some engineers write that, and then that all of that code and that integration goes away. And we have just the a large language model that's now generating all of that information. So it shifts the work. We no longer need to hire people to do that kind of integration. We no longer need to have a vendor in place there. And I think we're going to see things get chipped away that are best up for disruption. What about from the startup perspective on hiring developers these days? Has it changed? It hasn't changed too much yet from our perspective because what you have to do is you use the models, but you still have to have your own secret sauce. You need a moat that you're going to put in. You just can't go in and say, I'm another wrapper company where a wrapper company, if you hear the term, is someone who uses chat, GPT, Llama, Bard, something else, and just, just does prompt engineering. And you can actually grow pretty big. There are a number of apps out in the marketplace right now that do $100,000, $200,000 a day in terms of sales, but it drops off pretty quickly because it isn't differentiated. So from an engineering standpoint, I think that's where they can actually focus in on making things that are different that can actually build that moat. How do you plug into a service like ChatGPT versus going in and just saying, I'm going to build on top of it? So let's use Read AI as a bit of a case study here in terms of your tech stack. Can you describe how you've done that, how you've implemented your own technology, worked with large language models, and avoided just being a wrapper company and differentiated yourself? Yeah, so we said, let OpenAI, let Bard, let Google, et cetera, work on the language models. And 
We'll tune them as we go along, but where we differentiate is the nonverbal, the reaction side of things. So when you and I are talking, if the audience starts to get distracted here, I'm looking out, uh, and you start to go look at your phones, and I start to see everything light up there, I want that contextual information that I can put into the system. That isn't something that is available today. So if I know that people are distracted in this talk when I started talking about how do we differentiate what's our moat, then I can go back and say, okay, how do I change this moving forward? And that's where we're starting to go into now is the recommendation side of things to say, now that we know this is what happened, how would we actually change the outcome? And I think that's where the future of AI is gonna be is really, how do I change the outcome in real time? To what extent are you developing your own technology underneath that? So about 93% of our uh, processing costs, our engineering resources are against our own models. And about 7% is against the models that are out there that we can plug into like OpenAI. So what you're saying is, in terms of the overall feedback that you're giving people, you might say, hey, don't hold a meeting that's longer than 20 minutes, or don't hold a meeting at this time for David because he's not going to be showing up. Is it that kind of thing? 100%. So we've got a product coming out in about a week that where you type in someone's name, and as you get to the fourth or fifth person, we'll actually tell you that engagement will drop 14 16% as you add more people based on your historical results. So think of it almost like Calendly had a baby with clockwise and it went to the gifted school. And that's where we're going with that. One thing that we heard loud and clear in the pre-event survey was that people did not want to just hear about everything that's going great with AI. We want to make sure that the realities are the realities here. So I am curious, are there things that any of you have seen in your implementations internally of AI or your product development with AI that have given you pause, made you put on the brakes? hallucination, ethical issues. I'd like to hear where the pitfalls have been. Yeah, one of our real challenges has been with fair housing laws. So Redfin has 20 years of experience with fair housing law and the large language models have no experience with it. But we can't simply re-encode years of bias into algorithms and call it a day. So we have been partnering with the large language model companies to share with them test cases and uh, rules that we think need to be handled by these large language models so that they answer questions that in a way that does not violate fair housing law. We're very optimistic that we're going to be able to make real progress on this, but it's something that's going to affect using large language models and AI in healthcare, in any heavily regulated or any ethically sensitive business, which is pretty much all of the economy. Interesting. Anything that you've seen at GitHub that might give you pause? Yeah, I think we see different qualities on different languages. We 100% acknowledge that. It really depends on the, um, the recommendation that you get and it depends on the data sets that you train. So our mission is eventually to get to a similar quality across all the languages. So if it was at the beginning all in, let's go do everything, it's more about the fine tuning. I think the second thing is a lot about innovating responsibly with AI. We have our own trust center that helps customers take away a little bit of that fear when AI became such a big thing and, and every customer wanted to adopt that, a lot of the legal teams have put the brakes and said, oh wait, what is that thing? Um, and are you going to put it on your code base? And now they're going to detect all the company's secrets and can we use it and cannot use it? So really focusing on enabling our legal team to help customers really understand the value, what is used, what is not used. And we developed a trust center to help customers go through that transition. Is there anything you got ready at Read AI to launch and said, whoa, 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 that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's going to be the next headline on GeekWire. We can't do that. 
<laughs> nothing, nothing in the works on those Okay, lines. well, you let me know. <laughs> but seriously, have there been any big things where you've just looked at it and said, this, this is a concern in terms of your implementation of AI? Less concern and more education. And I think with any new technology that you want to go mainstream with, not the engineers, but just the general day-to-day -day folks that are interacting with Microsoft Word or they're using Google Docs, in that environment, you need to educate because people haven't seen that before. And what happens is part of it is magic. And they're like, oh, this is incredible. This saves me time. Part of it is like, is this going to take away my job? And what we've actually found is that it doesn't take away your job. It actually just frees up your time to work on different things. Like everyone here is probably going in and saying, I wish I had more time in the day. Imagine if AI could actually free up 25% of your day. Wouldn't you take that? And I think that's the story that we need to really focus in on is the value proposition. It's interesting. I, I really got a lot out of the pre-event survey, by the way, as you can tell. So thanks to everybody who, who uh, filled that out. One of the concerns was that employers will simply take this efficiency and have developers and other workers just increase their productivity and fill up the rest of the time rather than perhaps put it back into work-life balance. How are you looking at that within your own organizations? We've seen this for sure in real estate, even in the early days, you know, people said, well, can technology completely replace a real estate agent? But as it turns out, you know, most people need a real estate agent who's on their side, who can give them advice and really help them. And that's where people want their real estate agent to focus their time. So you probably don't miss the fact that your real estate agent probably doesn't fax documents anymore, but that used to be something that they'd spend a lot of time doing. So I think if we can shed the things that really aren't adding value to our society or aren't adding value to our relationship with our customers, give the real estate agent a co-pilot for themselves and then let that co-pilot, like let the co-pilot do its job, let the real estate agent get to know you and what you want in a house and who you are, they can help you get into your dream home better. That's what the customer wants. And I think it's very true in the world of software development in general. Uh, we see that the more time goes by, the more software developers are spending more time on doing things that are not necessarily writing software. So if we can help make their life better, if we can help them be more efficient in their time when they're writing code and enjoying that because they have a tool that helps them and then it free up some of their time or we make the build faster using AI or we make software being more secure so they need to less to spend less time in fixing their code or taking care of security, then you just get more out of that software developer versus what you today were, were fighting on, on a sliver of time to be able to get code done. How would employees ensure that the time that they save in meetings doesn't just get added on to their week uh, if they use read AI? From a time savings perspective, I think we're always jammed up. And I, a good example I will give you is like ad agencies. So ad agencies use our product today and account managers and account coordinators, what they run into is they spend about half their day coordinating different things, communications, messages, updates, status reports, et cetera. And they have a high churn rate. That I think the average tenure is about two to three years max when it comes to early entry level ad agency. Imagine if you're able to take that away and then you're able to develop that talent and keep them on board because you don't have to spend all this tedious tasks. I think that's where the return is. And I think that's where it's a little bit of a unknown, but it's also a lot of upside to go in and say, look, we can streamline this process where now you have 25% more time to figure out what is next, how to grow that business that isn't necessarily copy and paste. After the break. A glimpse of the future of AI. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? 
Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. I want to throw it out to the audience for questions in just a minute. But before we do that, I, I wanted to just look ahead to the future. I listened just recently to a great podcast that you were on, David, with Boaz Ashkenazi, Shift AI. And one of the things that really stood out to me from your conversation with Boaz was the Ask Jeeves axiom yeah. of the future of AI. Can you explain this to us? Yeah. So if you did, if you, if you're a little bit older and you did search before Google is big, these are the days where you're using AOL and Yahoo as your primary search engine, and there's this company called Ask Jeeves, and this butler would come in and say, what would you like? And what you would do is you would ask the search engine a question, and then it would return back results. It was very novel, it was very interesting. Uh, they did well for a bit, but it started to pull away, and it became more about how do I either deliver content directly to you, like a social network does, or specifically search in terms of Google, where I look for keywords, give me the best results. And I think what you're seeing right now is this generation of Ask Jeeves as ChatGPT. I can ask my PDF a question. I can ask a website a question. At the end of the day, I don't want to do those things. Like, I want that content delivered to me. I want the AI to recognize this is interesting, this is important to me, and deliver it, and then I will make a decision. I don't want to ask a bunch of questions. And I think that's that Ask Jeeves component. Yeah. Bridget, where do you see things going? What, what's next? What's on the horizon for you? Are there specific AI technologies that you and the team at Redfin really have on your radar right now? One thing we're really looking at is how AI is going to transform images. Real estate is very visual, and you're imagining what would it be like to live somewhere? What, it is, what is it like to be in a particular neighborhood? And some of the transformation, the combination of large language models with image technology, it's just really it's really opening up what we can do. Like when you think about all the businesses that touch up photos or um, help to stage photos or get into even, you know, the way that we present our real estate agents on our site, the way that you think about headshots, all of those things can now be improved by a large language model that helps your customers experience things in a different way. So we're really interested in image technology. And Inbal, you've called this moment that we're in right now yeah the equivalent of the industrial revolution for AI. As we shift from this optimized AI to generalized AI, how do you see things playing out from here? Well, I think that eventually we'll find a balance between that niche AI and the generalized AI. Right now we are shifting hard left toward the generalized AI and we see the evolution of LLMs and um, everyone who's not a software developer can develop something on top of AI. Eventually we're still working in specific areas of domain expertise. So there is only so far that generalized AI can take us, and we will need to build on top of that. And I think David mentioned that 93% of the things are you're building by yourself. So we'll continue seeing that evolution, and we'll find that right balance between the, the specialized AI and the generalized AI. So none of them will go away. We're now in a world that we have reinvented AI, um, but that combination will be the future. Go ahead. Perry Atkins. Hello, Todd. Uh, this is for David, but it's really for all of you. So, David, I heard you saying that uh, you'll have a bot act as a proxy at meetings for you. And, Bridget, you having uh, not a bot, but a program that can take 30 minutes of human conversation down to, was it two minutes? One. One minute. <laughs> so how do you adapt for EQ elements of who you're conversing with? And then for you, David, let's say you get a meeting back 
somehow transcribed to you. How do you take the EQ element of a meeting you've had and um, how is AI transforming to be able to adapt to that or is that a barrier? Yeah, we're putting a lot of thought into this area. It's a really interesting evolving area. So one of the things that we noticed in the AI bots that we've been developing is that the AI wants to kind of make you happy the way that the large language models are working. It wants to make you pleased. It's incented to do that. And it's actually not disincented in any way. Like if a coworker recommends you something and it doesn't work out, that's a disincentive. There can be, you know, they, they're like, oh, sorry, I made that mistake. The AI doesn't care about that. So we've been thinking about how do we, how do we inject into all of these systems that idea that we don't want you to just make me happy. We want you to give you the correct answer. And those sorts of emotional elements of AI, I think are going to be an area of a lot of research and development. I would say if you've ever been in four hours straight of meetings, your EQ goes down with each incremental hour. So <laughs> if I could actually take two or three hours off my schedule, I think I would be more engaged. I would be more active. And the second part of the AI that actually helps out your EQ is to get the results back where it's not a manager. It's not your coworker telling you like, hey, you spoke too fast. You're kind of disengaged. It's the AI, so it's almost like Waze telling you make a right turn. You're not offended. You're like, thanks for helping me out. Now I'm gonna keep this in mind in the future. All right, I think we have a question back in the corner if we can get a mic to, to that attendee back there. Yeah, hi, this is for everybody. I'm a student at UW right now and I'm interested in getting into software engineering. There we go. But you were mentioning the future of software engineering changing from something that's more of writing code to something that's more along the lines of using prompts and training AI models to help you write that code. So what kind of advice would you give to people that are looking to get into that field in the future in terms of being better about training AI models and less about learning how to write like good code? My son is a student in Utah, by the way. He learns computer engineering. And he asked me the same question. It's like, so what do I need to learn? The, the best advice that I gave him is keep your horizon broadened. Don't just learn how to write Cool. Don't just learn a language. Assume that the language is a tool that you have in your toolbox. Figure out what else can you learn. Like go understand more on the data science. Go understand the mathematics behavior behind it. Understand how a computer works so you can be ready for that future that you need to have a broader understanding of the systems that you're using, not just the language that you choose how to use. Any other thoughts on that, especially from a hiring perspective? If you know, in five years, what are you going to be looking for in your next engineers? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the advice you gave is is spot on. I do think that what we also see, and this is this is through my whole career, is that when junior engineers join the company, they've often gotten a taste of the cutting edge of everything through that university experience or through a boot camp experience. They're often introducing students to the latest and greatest. And then you have some senior engineers who maybe haven't spent as much time as they should getting interested in all those new things that are happening because they're focused on their job. So I think as an engineer coming into a company, you really have this role to play in introducing a company to these new ideas. And I think if you stay focused on that cutting edge, that's a real differentiator when you're interviewing with a company. Go dogs. Uh, we've got a question Well, right over here. Sure. So I work with a team who does a lot of work with generative AI. And um, one of the things that we're thinking about is meetings with synthetic content and people who are contributing via a bot. So I'm just curious from the panelists what you're doing to prevent synthetic content from kind of corrupting the data that you could get out of it. I'm especially thinking of David, but with Copilot, it's also applicable. 
Define synthetic content, just, just to make sure we're clear on what we're talking about in this context. I, I think of it, and tell me if I'm wrong on this for, from your definition, but mine's like, you could tell exactly that it came from ChatGPT, it came from 3.5, 4.0, mid-journey, whatever that is. And you just can tell when you read it. It's like when you talk with a bot at a website, you put in your first question, you're like, I know this is a bot. You just, mm -hmm. you just have that sense. And I think from my standpoint is your audience is still people. So even if the AI helps you, your audience is people. And if you can't actually deliver content that resonates with those people, it's not going to be a good solution. And so for us, it's really about gathering the information today and then giving that information and letting someone make choices on what they deliver versus going in and saying, let me replace you completely. Now, over time, it's going to evolve and it's going to get more and more interesting. Uh, but today, I think that's where we're at. Yeah, I think Copilot is you get code suggestion is as synthetic as it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you want to understand that you're getting this suggestion from a machine. You don't want to humanize it because you want still to have that criticism of a human being looking into that code and understanding that this is a code, it's a machine generated code. And then how you put your checks and balances on top of that code. The name Copilot, which is now the brand that Microsoft, which uh, is the parent company of GitHub, yes. uses across its different AI tools, was chosen very purposefully right. for these types of reasons. There, exactly. There's still a human in the mix. Yes, it's a Copilot. It's not a pilot. And this is why when GitHub launched Copilot, we're very deliberate to say it's a Copilot. It's not a pilot, nor do we think it will be a pilot. And as such, this is why also Microsoft chose that as the brand name for all the AI assistant that we're putting out there. We got time for one one more. I question for David. I think this question is more related to customers and getting the data over. So you guys are in pretty sensitive area with you know business meetings and all that, right? So what are some of the things you have to do to like appease your customers to make sure hey, not only is the data going to you, right? And then yep. you're sending that over to OpenAI. Like I know you mentioned disclosures. What are some of the other things you have to do? in the sales cycle or a business or like technology wise? Yeah, I think it starts with just the, the basics around SOC 2 compliance, ISO, making sure you have those boxes checked. But the, I think the more important thing is giving the consumer or the user full control over the data. So you can go in and delete an individual report. If someone is on a call that they don't want to be on, they have full rights to delete that data. So it's not about taking the data and then hiding it and then using it for our own purposes. The second part is contractually, we don't actually use anybody's data. So you actually, similar to what Microsoft and other companies have, is like you have to opt in if you want to improve the models. But at the end of the day, the default is off. So we want people to actually have full control. And I think that's where people get more comfortable versus if I do something sneaky and I start to pull in data, that's where people get distrustful about AI. And I think that's the consent that you want. I do want to give each of you just a chance to give any final takeaways that you would want to, to offer on this topic. And Bridget, we can go ahead and start with you. Yeah, I think for us, it's just been the, the transformation of, of innovation and this idea that there have been parts of our business that we thought technology couldn't really change. And just in the last few months, as these technologies have come to light, generative AI, LLMs, it's just created this wave of innovation. So I just encourage you to look through your business, look at parts of your business that you thought technology could never touch. Maybe now there is a way that you could make that part of your business better. For us, it's a lot about developer happiness, which comes from developer experience, developer productivity, and developer collaboration. It's about how we continue innovating and taking AI across the software development lifecycle. And it's a lot of focus about education across the board, not just students per se, but all the learners that we have in the community to make sure that everyone is ready for the revolution that is happening right now. David, especially from the startup perspective, I know there's a lot of startup 
people in this crowd, what, what would you want them to know? Embrace AI, go as fast as you can, but make sure you have a moat because this is going to be a period of time where everything is condensed. Like if you look at history today, I think things are moving faster than they've ever had. But if you go back to when GeekWire first came out, uh, things moved a lot slower. Now we're seeing companies that raised a billion dollars, now they're gone when it comes to like AI. And really? so- <laughs> no. <laughs> and so it's important to go in and actually say like, hey, things are moving very quickly. I need to be able to iterate. I need to be able to move. I need to be able to change as the market changes, but also keep with the core that what is my differentiator at the end of the day. David, Inbal, and Bridget, thank you so much for joining us at the GeekWire Summit. Thank you. That was Redfin CTO, Bridget Fry. GitHub Chief Product Officer Inbal Shani, and Read AI CEO David Shim speaking with me at the GeekWire Summit in Seattle. See geekwire.com for notes and takeaways. Audio editing this week by Kurt Milton. On-site AV by Adavanza. Thanks for listening. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast. <laughs>